Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you have spoken to us ever so clearly and you have revealed yourself in full in your, uh, in your word. And of course, we know that the epitome of that revelation, the, the, uh, uh, the fullness of it is found in Jesus Christ. He perfectly shows us who you are. He perfectly reveals to us um, what you are doing for us, for our salvation, for fixing this world. And he perfectly reveals to us what it is that you would have us do in response. And so, Father, we pray that as we continue learning more and more about what the Scripture teaches through the eyes of the uh, teachers of the Catechism, we pray that we would understand these things more deeply and that they would affect us so that we would grow more deeply in our love for Christ and indeed for one another. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, while Jonathan passes those out, we are doing question number 23 today. Uh, again, that is either uh, your own pocket version that you carry around with you or uh, in the, in the uh, Trinity hymnal somewhere around 570-ish. But let's go ahead and uh, find question number 23. And we got some scripture, scripture passages as well to be, uh, to be read. And I'm just going to ask if you've got it in front of you, will you go ahead and read it and uh, we'll get started. If somebody just wants to grab that and all right. Thank you so much. So here we are um, delving deeper into who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So we have been looking, of course, um, starts by telling us in the catechism of our uh, state of, of sin and misery. And as we have looked at the last several weeks, it has shifted over to talking about how uh, Christ, has, or rather God, is now acting to save us, to rescue us out of that estate of sin and misery, and the way he's going to do it is through the Christ, through Jesus. Thank you, Timothy. And um, so we looked a little bit at who Jesus is in terms of his very nature, and so we spent quite a few weeks, because that is so pivotal, looking at that Jesus is both fully God, fully man, doesn't surrender any part of those two natures, but he is one person. And we looked at why that was important, how our salvation depends on it, and so on. Uh, so that's looking at Jesus in his very essence. But now we're beginning to look at his office. That is to say, the role that he plays into which he's been called to as the Redeemer. What does it mean that he redeems? And it says, you know, in the question, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? What roles does he fulfill as our Redeemer? And it tells us that both in his estate of humiliation, which is his earthly life, his uh, being humbled, and that humiliation is in ha-ha, you know, that kind of thing, although there was that at the cross, as we know, uh, as uh, um, uh, Dave has been uh, showing us in, in these last few sermons, but humiliation in the sense that he was humbled into taking on human form, the one who had created all things, becoming like, you know, like us, and then his state of exaltation after his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, that's an interesting point that will tie this around and come back to, which is Jesus, in his role as Redeemer, that didn't end with the crucifixion or even with the resurrection. It continues, and it continues in all three of these areas. So we're going to talk about these things. We're going to uh, unpack them. Um, let me just say one more thing, just to go briefly through each, each of these. Uh, a prophet, of course, we tend to use that word today as somebody who can f tell the future, and that is not at all what a prophet means in Scripture. The prophet uh, words, the words just it, the word itself just means the person 
who brings or brings the revelation or brings the word of God to us. Somebody has put it cleverly, it's not foretell, it's forth tell. It's the telling forth. So a prophet might tell the future if that's what God wanted to communicate, but he's just bringing God's word to the people. A priest is the person, of course, who is involved in uh, the sacrificial system, the person who's involved in mediation. That's always the key thing of a priest between God and man. Uh, and then, of course, a king, uh, pretty straightforward, since the, that's something that even today we still have, um, and we can see them, uh, a king being uh, a ruler. So as we jump into this, the, you've got your diagram. The reason we have uh, this diagram is because I want you to see that, that the idea of office priest and king is hard-baked into all sorts of different areas of our theology. It's just found all throughout. Um, the whole message of the Bible, um, you know, and what God is doing for us is kind of found in, in these uh, um, different areas of theology. So I want you to be able to see the relationship that exists between these various key areas of, uh, of the Christian faith. So um, if you look at your chart on the left side, it was on the top, prophet, priest, and king, you can see that. You're gonna see that this idea of these offices touches upon man's original condition. It touches upon uh, the history of, of the church in the Old Testament, uh, that is to say, Israel. Uh, as it prepared for Christ, it touches upon the, the very saving work of Christ. It touches upon uh, how we ourselves are converted. It touches upon the marks of the true church. All of this is subsumed under this idea of prophet, priest, and king. So that's a lot. And in the time that we have, I'm gonna try to unpack that for you uh, using this diagram primarily. So let's take a look at the first one. And you'll notice the first one is actually divided into two. It's man as he was in the garden, man as he is today. So when we start, and I'm getting, taking us back to, um, okay, it's question 10. Question 10, how did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. So you might remember that um, when we looked at that. But this idea of, um, and I won't defend that statement at length, but when we uh, read that and we looked at the scripture and it says that man was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, let's unpack that again. So the idea is that man was created with the ability to know, to truly understand and truly engage the world. Um, and that's what, you know, and it means that it was, man was created in knowledge. In that respect, uh, you can see the role of the prophet there. Uh, man had the ability to, understand the word of God. When the word of God was spoken to him, when God, uh, of course, you know, we, we, we tend to think um, of God and, 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 and the garden and Adam, uh, you know, as just conversing with one another. That's the idea you get. Uh, it doesn't seem to be, you know, that anybody is sent to go see Adam because there's nobody to be sent. He's the only one around at that point. But that conversation, Adam is able to comprehend fully the word of God. Uh, so you can see how that ties in. He had knowledge, and by knowledge, again, we mean he had, that doesn't mean he knew everything. He was being sent out into the world, in fact, to discover more. But he had the ability to process all that information, all that data uh, perfectly, and do it in a way that was uh, error-free, as it were. 
Um, then when we get to the uh, office of priest, it tells us that he was made in righteousness. Now, back when we did look at question 10, let me distinguish between righteousness and holiness. Holiness is the one for king, and you might remember there were maybe some questions about that. So when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about your standing before God. You know, are you righteous? In, in, uh, when we talk about, for example, today uh, being justified, uh, you remember that in, in, in the original languages of the Bible, uh, that's the exact same word. It just We have different, in English, we're pulling from different uh, lang- loan words from different languages. So justified and righteousness don't sound alike, but they're actually the very same word in Scripture. So when you are justified, you are being declared righteous, you're being made, made righteous. It doesn't mean how you actually behave, it's, it's that standing that you have. In our case, we get the, uh, uh, the righteousness of Christ, his record, his merit is imputed to us. And we've talked about that, so you know how that works. Uh, but the point simply being here, when we talk about he was created in righteousness, his standing before God was perfect, he was guiltless, right? And so in that respect, as far as, far as his being a priest, which is mediating that relationship between God and man and bringing us into a state of righteousness, Adam had that. And then we get to king, holiness. What holiness is different is how do you behave? Holiness, the word literally means to be set apart. And again, depending on whether you're talking about holiness or sanctification, they are the exact same word, just one is pulling from Latin. And so um, in scripture, to be sanctified, to be holy is the exact same thing. It means to be set apart and set apart in your behavior, in the way that you live. So the things that you do. So if you can, if you can um, distinguish between those two, righteousness then is your standing, your legal standing as it was before God. Uh, holiness is your behavior. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but you can see how that works. So when you look at all three of these different um, offices and how they pertain to man, Man was created in knowledge. He could be the perfect prophet. He could understand God's word. He could receive God's word and so on. His righteousness before God uh, was perfect. Uh, he, did, he himself was his own priest, as it were. He could relate to God directly because he had a relationship being sinless. He had a relationship with a perfectly sinless God as well. And then as a, as a king, as it were, he was able to behave, to act in a way that is holy. Every one of his actions uh, before the fall was in line with God's will. So can you guys see that connection? So when the catechism question uh, 10 talked about knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, you can see that even this question will look back on that. And the reason that's important is because remember when we talk about what Jesus came to do, he came to restore us to what we, to what we lost in the garden. And he's going to do that. Remember, he's our perfect substitute, so he's going to do that by being what we couldn't be. So that's why his offices have something to do with the very nature of who we are as human beings. Does that make sense? You can see that, those interconnections. So that's, uh, according to your chart, man as he was in the garden. But now we look at man as he is today. What happened after the fall? And after the fall, uh, our knowledge has been turned into ignorance. Does this mean that men can't know anything? And uh, again, we kind of covered this uh, when we did question 10, so I'm not going to uh, flesh that all out. But the point is that our, uh, our ability to understand has been severely compromised by sin. Uh, 
Um, it's one of the things that I think I want to repeat here because if you come from another tradition, especially if you're in, in the, coming from a broad evangelical background, very often sin is simply looked at in categories of behavior. You know, you, you're going along, everything is fine in your life, and then you mess up, you sinned, that kind of thing. And um, I've got to justify Timothy come, bringing the, make, I made him bring the dry erase board, so I've got to come up with something. But you know, so, so often it looks like we're just, here's our moral life, we're doing okay, then you mess up, you sin. And then, you know, you, you repent and you're back. And maybe you sin, or maybe you sin, and you, you know, backsliding Christian. And then you come back, and, you know. And, and it looks like an EKG, but um, there, there's no doubt that there is an aspect of this that's true. It's in your behavior, but the biblical understanding of sin is that it's endemic, right? Or in another word that's been popularly used a lot in the last uh, five, six years, but is incorrectly used systemic uh it is in your system sin is you know uh again we we uh, uh understand that we are in total depravity which we'll talk about more as we get deeper into uh um soteriology the salvation of uh, the theology of salvation but the idea that um sin affects even your ability to think every part of who you are so man now lives in ignorance no longer uh, able to understand the world around him perfectly. Everything that he gets, that he looks and he studies and examines uh, is going to be understood imperfectly with some level of sin messing up and, and, and not just messing up, but making it impossible for him to truly grasp the nature of things until God again enables us to understand things the way they are. But we'll get to that in just a second. So knowledge before, now ignorance. Righteous before, now guilt. Again, standing. We're talking about here, you're standing. So before he had a perfect standing with God, he was guiltless, he was righteous. Now he is guilty, right? And in terms of uh, holiness, in terms of what we do, are we separate from the world and how we act and behave? No, we are now sinful. Our behavior is sinful. So that's these offices as they pertain to who we are, how we were created, and what we've become after the fall. Any questions about any of that so far? Is that making sense? Okay, I know we're covering a whole lot of detail, and I hope that the chart will help you uh, along the way. Um, Let's see. Okay, now we're going to probably look up a whole lot of scripture from this point on, so let's get our Bibles ready. And let's jump to the next one. Uh, and again, stop me here because I realize we're covering whole different areas of Christian theology, of Christian doctrine, and we're relating it back. So if we get a little lost, that's okay. Um, but let's take a look at Israel. When uh, God creates a people who are going to be the vehicle, the vessel by which he brings redemption, uh, the people of Israel, he starts with one man. That man is? Uh, true in the sense that ultimately all descends from Adam, but he's thinking of one people group in particular that he's taking out from the world, that he's going to make his, um, Abraham, yep, uh, yeah, this is the vessel, the, 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 the means by which he's going to bring redemption into the world. You're absolutely right that in um, Genesis 3.15, after the fall and God is pronouncing his curse, he tells Eve that there will be one who will come who will redeem, and, and yes, in that respect, you know, he starts even from the point of Adam on. 
But he starts putting that into effect through Abraham. And so in the time of Abraham, we see again this idea of prophet, priest, and king. When next time you read Genesis, you'll see it. So let's have somebody look up Genesis 20, verse 7. And another person look up Genesis 13, 4. Yeah, so 20, verse 7 for prophet, 13, 4 for priest, 14, 1 through 2, 13, 17 through 24. Maybe we don't need to read all those, but just enough. Um, So let's just take a look at those. Would somebody go ahead and read the first one? This is showing him as a prophet. Okay, so God declares that Abraham himself was a prophet, one who brought the word of God. How about uh, Genesis 13, 4? All right, thank you. So we see Abraham um, fulfilling the role of a, of a priest uh, with sacrifices having built the altar. And then uh, Genesis 14, let's read the first couple of verses. And, and I think that we can probably hold off there. What, that story, as you know, is he has to go rescue his, uh, his nephew Lot. These were kings. Now, when we think of kings today, we think of people who you know, rule over nations that cover continents and all that other stuff. And back in those days, the king was basically the mayor. Um, he you know, this is the guy that oversaw a little war band. Uh, and and he, he might have 150 men. That was his army. You know, we can rustle up 150 men just, you know, in our neighborhoods easily. But that's what a king was. And so he was the, the king over a city, sta- city state. You know, we think of the Greek polis, that kind of thing. But even earlier in that, that's... So Abraham is in that same camp he's at that same level he's so successful what he's he's not a war he's not a um a warlord which is essentially what these kings today we would probably use that term uh he doesn't think in those terms but when these five guys get together he just musters his own allies and he's able to take them all on so he basically essentially serves in that role um as as a king the point that we're getting at here is that as God gathers his people Israel, he starts doing so with this man Abraham. And in Abraham, you have all three of those offices rolled up into one person. That's going to change. It's going to change as the Abrahamic family grows, but it's got to start somewhere. You know, it's Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Jacob has the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, and it just, you know, grows out there. But that starting point with Abraham he is Israel in that respect, in that, in that sense, and the prototype in that regard. And all three offices are found in Abraham. But once the family grows large enough, uh, you begin to see God distinguishing between those three offices and calling individuals to those offices. It starts very early on with the first of his very clear prophets, and that's Moses. So if someone were to, for example, look up, um, well, you know what, I'm just going to give these for reference. Uh, I think, you know, this, most of you will take my word for something like this. But um, Moses, as a prophet, the one who brings God's words, we see it from the very beginning. God meets him in Exodus chapter 3 at the, at the burning bush and sends him on his mission. Uh, that's the, the, the typical prophetic uh, standard that we think of. Uh, I want you to go and do this and tell my people that I'm coming to deliver them. Who shall I say sent me? I am, that I am has sent you. You know, that kind of thing. So that starts right there in Exodus chapter 3 and the rest of his life. He fulfills that role as a prophet. Now what's interesting, and one of the things you may want to note as you take notes, is that in the Pentateuch, in those first five books of the Bible, 
it's very clear that he is the key prophet. In fact, all throughout, we'll get back to what I was about to say in the Pentateuch, but parenthesis, all throughout the whole of the Old Testament, they always look back on Moses as the highlight of the prophet. Now, you may not think in those terms because we tend to think of the prophets being Jeremiah or Ezekiel or you know that kind of thing. But again and again, Moses is the one that they look back to. Why? Because Moses is the only one who had a relationship with God that it says that God spoke to him face to face. He's the only one that he literally would talk to Moses and say, here's what I want you to say, or here's what I... All the others receive their information, their, their prophecies through visions, dreams, you know, all that kind of thing and so on. Moses was that man of God who God spoke, who was called his friend and, you know, and who spoke with him face to face. I think it's a very important point. And in Deuteronomy, getting back to the point I was going to get at there, uh, it, it tells us, and I'll give you the reference here, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20, Moses actually said that you are to look forward to this last great prophet who is to come. And when he comes, he, he's the one who's going to ultimately fulfill the role that Moses is saying that I was just kind of filling in for. And of course, he's looking forward to the coming of Jesus as the one great prophet. But it's important to see that, that even as God reveals himself, and remember, this is something we've talked about before, Throughout the whole Old, Te- Old Testament, the way that you understand the Old Testament is progressive revelation. God is progressively revealing more of himself as you go through the, the history of the, uh, of the Israelites, the history of redemption, really not just the Israelites because it starts before Abraham. But God reveals more and more about who he is and what he's come to do. We talked about that at the very beginning of our catechetical studies. So here he is revealing himself hey, again, these three offices, I'm going to work through these three. Here's Moses, my great prophet. But he zooms us all the way to the end and tells us that there will be one final prophet to come. By the way, our Muslim friends next door understand that to be Muhammad. You know, so they understood at least that that is being said. We should at least understand that it's in there and it talks about you know, there's a, a prophet yet to come and that has been fulfilled in Christ. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20. Another prophet to come. I'm going to get there. That's, that's on your chart. We're, we're heading there. That's a very good question. In fact, it's a key question to ask, isn't it? So we've got that going on. Then you get to Aaron. Aaron was, of course, Moses' brother. And in Aaron, you have a high priest. So now here's Aaron executing the office of priest. Again, Abraham had him all wrapped up in him. Now it's being separated. Prophet, priest. Uh, and let's see, what do we have here? This time we can look at Exodus 29, 29. Um, that's just, okay, that's just establishing the priesthood. In 1 Samuel 2, 35 it tells us that that priesthood would come to an end, that there would be an ending of the ironic, not ironic, ironic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron would come to an end, and of course that comes to an end in Christ, who is that final uh, priest. And then we zoom forward to King, the coming of David. David is seen, now. I know Saul is the first king, but uh, 
everything in the scripture leans towards, not leans, but points out David, his successor, as being the one whom God had actually chosen. I mean, he did choose Saul, but he was chosen just to say, see, this is what you guys get for, for, not, uh, for, for rejecting your king, which was God himself, and wanting a human king. So David gets appointed king, and again, all throughout, it's very, very clear that there's gonna be a, a son of David who's gonna be the epitome of that kingship. And uh, again, some passages you may want to note. Second uh, Samuel 7, 12 through 16, Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Psalm 110, and on, so on and so on and so on. Um, let me put those up there. So uh, this is for a future prophet. And then the end of the Aaronic priesthood is for Samuel um, I can't read today, 235. And then, of course, another king to come is found in 2 Samuel 7. That's when God makes his covenant with David and tells him there will always be somebody on the throne but one to come. And then you have Psalms like Psalm 2 and Psalm uh, 70, what did I put? 72, 110, and so on. These are the so-called messianic psalms, although they're all messianic in one sense, properly understood. So that's establishing, I'm looking at our time here, that's establishing then how Israel, the very, um, the very way in which God organizes the nation of Israel, it's different roles, the different leadership roles, prophet, priest, and king. Um, and even as he establishes them, uh, what's very clear is that there's one who's going to come uh, who supersedes and is the epitome of all of those. And that's an important thing because as you look at the history of redemption, what do you do? You see faithful prophets who reveal God's word to his people, who bring that true word. I mean, you also see unfaithful prophets who fail to do that, you know, um, in fact, go out of their way and bring um, what is false. You see faithful priests uh, who showed there could be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, and that's an important point that comes through, through the priesthood. Again, every one of these offices is revealing something about how God is going to work in Christ. So the priesthood in the Old Testament reveals there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Again, faithful priests but you also get a number of unfaithful ones who uh, do not uh, uh, follow the sacrificial system that God lays out in Leviticus and so on and so on. And then you have these faithful kings, and the faithful kings are there to show how we are to obey God uh, in all things, and it always started with them personally. And they, uh, as we saw before, the king was given himself, was himself given the word of God, and he was expected uh, to apply it to himself first and foremost. And then you also get unfaithful kings who do not obey and, and so on. Uh, the whole idea of these unfaithful prophets, priests, and kings is to highlight the fact that in the end, the humans who fulfilled those offices uh, throughout the history of Israel always did it imperfectly and always left you wanting more. They never could kind of, kind of get us there. They're what we call, of course, types. And when we use the word type, I'm gonna erase these up here if that's okay. Is that okay? You got all these? Yep, yep. Sorry, today we're giving you a lot of theological terms and a lot of stuff to do. 
But what better way to kick off daylight saving time when you're one hour deprived of sleep? And <laughs> but, you know, when we talk about type, today we use that word to mean kind, right? I'll ask you, uh, what type of fruit is that? You know, that kind of thing. I really mean, what kind of fruit is that? But the word type, in its um, original meaning, as you know, means the exemplar. Uh, and uh, we still have a little bit of that word uh, meaning when we think about things like prototype, you know, so Jonathan's designing the latest, greatest airplane, you know, at work, uh, or some other defense thing that he can't tell us about, tell us about, but um, so he's developing a prototype, you know, the one that's the exemplar of everything that is to follow. So, um, and then of course, the other word that we use today, archetype. Arch meaning the very top, the king. It literally means king type the type that is king, the, the, the preeminent one. So we think of Jesus as the archetype in terms of office, in terms of these offices, prophet, priest, and kings. But these others are types along the way. Uh, they are in, the, in that same pattern, if that makes sense. Okay, so that's Israel. Is that all good? Are we following, we're tracking? How that tracks with prophet, priest, and king? Okay, now we're gonna pick up the pace a little bit because we only have 10 minutes left. And we have three more lines to cover in your, in your chart. Um, by the way, does everyone have one of these? Anybody need one? Let me better ask that. Uh, okay, Timmy's got All right, I saw a few folks arriving there at the end, and we want you to have that so you can follow along. So when we get to Jesus, now we have the one man who comes and fulfills all three of these offices perfectly. And he doesn't just fulfill them, but he unites them. He brings them together into this one great work of, uh, of redemption. And the first thing is we see all three of these being executed during his earthly ministry. Remember that the catechism question says uh, at the very end that he re- executes these offices in both his estate of humiliation, his earthly ministry, as well as his exaltation. So let's just look at the earthly ministry while he was here on earth. He spoke God's word. And of course, he spoke God's word as no man had ever done. Uh, Whereas all the other ones say, thus saith the Lord. He would sit there and say, but I tell you. You know, he spoke with that authority that was different. So again, in Jesus, you have that perfect prophet who brings us the word of God, the full revelation. And of course, and it wasn't just in the things that he said, his very being. And this is one of the things that we sometimes wrestle with that we don't quite kind of comprehend. His very being is revelation. Because when Moses, that great prophet that we were talking about, comes and speaks, we see a man just like you and me. We don't see God. We hear of God through Moses. But when Jesus speaks, yes, you hear of God through Jesus. But that's because God himself is before you. In human form, and like we've already talked about earlier in this, uh, this class, truly human as human as we are in every way, other than being sinless. But the point that was key there is his very being is a a revelation of who God is. So, right, he shows up after his resurrection, pops into the disciples, uh, and they all sit there and say, ah, you know, uh, I don't believe, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so, okay, come touch. Come on, Thomas, touch and see and all that. And um, then, then he tells Philip, uh, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, right? Making absolutely clear 
this idea that the very revelation of God of Jesus is the revelation of God is very being it's one of the reasons why uh, reformed folk traditionally have kept or clung to that which has been one time was held by all uh, who came out of the Reformation and has been let go and that's understanding that the second commandment uh, the, the the forbidding of making of images and so on applies also to Jesus and you might say well what does that have to do with it why can't I have you know Mel Gibson's I don't know who played Jesus, but him or uh, or whatever this guy Powell was, and um, back in 1978, for those who might remember Jesus of Nazareth. Anyway, anyways, why can't I have those guys do it? Uh, display him. They all do it differently. They all do it exactly. The point is that when Jesus acted, acted. I mean, be, didn't his stuff that very the way he spoke see how i do this this is me this is just how i behave i put my arm here i rest here i talk to you that's my style jesus very style was a revelation of his character does that make sense you can't capture that because it we don't have that available to us so um uh if you ever watched the 1978-79 series jesus of nazareth it was a little mini series um the guy's very soft-spoken He's, he's, he's come, this is a 60s Jesus kind of being updated a little bit for the 70s. And so he, he isn't quite yet, you know, driving the minivan, the, the Volkswagen van with the flowers and all that. There was a, he's kind of shed a little bit of that in the 70s, but he still is that very soft Jesus. And then, you know, you get uh, uh, other Jesuses that are shown and they're, they're more powerful or whatever and, you know, and how they be. All those are interpretations. And what happens when you interpret God's character? It's called idolatry. You see why we do it. The point is that Jesus is that perfect prophet. His very words, his very being reveals God and who he is. And that's why, in, um, hang on to that for just a moment, that's why we get in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. God is called, uh, Jesus is called the word because he himself is the perfect word revelation. Okay, I'm gonna, I think we have time to, um, wrap up this one section here on, uh, on Christ, and then we'll, we'll uh, try to wrap this up next week. But if you look at your chart again, so I think we've established that Jesus is that perfect prophet. Uh, the very word of God is being revealed to us. And again, I'm, I put in your chart, they're revealing to us. That's the language that we're gonna see in, um, in the catechism that's, uh, that's to come as it unpacks this. Jesus, of course, also is the perfect sacrifice. We see that happening uh, again, we're talking about just his earthly ministry. Uh, he's that final sacrifice, that sufficient sacrifice. Uh, his very sacrifice himself is um, what actually obtains our, our redemption. All the other sacrifices were just pointing forward to it, that kind of thing. So Jesus himself becomes uh, that sacrifice, uh, uh, again, fulfilling the office of, of, uh, of priest. And then in terms of fulfilling the office of, uh, of king, uh, he had complete authority over men, uh, and he makes that absolutely clear, uh, both as Savior and as judge. We see him having, uh, and, and he even tells Pilate, you know, your authority is not yours. It was given to you. Um, he has complete authority over nature. We see that in calming the winds and waves, for example, walking on the water. He has complete authority over the spiritual forces. He casts the demons out and so on. So this is the sovereign ruler. And that's just his earthly ministry. But we tend to think that's the end of that, but I want us to see that continues even afterwards. 
Uh, is he continuing to be our prophet even now in his ascended ministry? Yes. Uh, he reveals his word to us through his Holy Spirit. And he, t- he tells us in John fourteen six, John fifteen six, both of those, that he's going to send his spirit and the spirit will reveal to us even greater things and so on. So the spirit of Christ is, is and it's called the spirit of Christ. He continues that work of being our prophet, bringing to us the word of God, both through teaching and preaching and our own reading as he works even in our own hearts. Does he continue as our priest? He is, yes, he does. He continues as our priest even now. He doesn't have to re-sacrifice himself. So our friends in the Roman church and elsewhere are wrong in this idea that when you do the Lord's Supper that it's a re-sacrificing. No, but he does as our mediator, right? First Timothy 5 tells us that there's, um, um, I'm sorry, five, 2 5 tells us that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. So he continues to be the one and the only one who can stand between God and man. He's perfect God, so he can speak to us as God. He's perfect man, so he can speak to God as our representative. He's that perfect mediator, and even now he intercedes for us. He prays for us. He hears our prayers and passes them on perfectly and that intercession is what allows us access to God, as, as Romans 5 talks about, that access that we now have to God uh, that's been restored after the fall. So he continues as our priest, and of course he continues as our king. He sits on the throne of heaven now. Revelation 4 and 5 shows that the lamb takes the throne, and from there rules over all of the created uh, universe, over all things spiritual and physical. So Jesus then is the perfect... Uh, um, prophet, priest, and king, the perfect uh, exemplar of all these three offices, both in his earthly ministry and in his ascension, that is to say now. Does that make sense? Okay, I wonder, can I push it for five minutes and see if we can get through these last two? No, this is not going to work. Okay, let's see what I can do. If we need to, we'll, we'll take it up next week. So let's go very quickly. When you are converted, um, no, no, yeah, there's just too much here. I'm going to stop here because we're going to need to unpack some of these things, law and gospel and what it means. You know, uh, and I certainly the marks of the church, if you were in our uh, newcomers class here last uh, couple of weeks, you'll be reminded what the marks of the church are, but if not, we'll bring them up. So let's go ahead and hang on to our, our stuff and we'll, we'll deal with that next week. Matt. Uh, the three offices. Is it our other denominations and, uh, wouldn't subscribe to this? I'm assuming, but just not talk about it. Why is it that the reformers like to point this out? It's always hard to answer questions like that, especially when you're being videotaped and it's going to go on the internet. <laughs> um, you know, I always want to be charitable and, and say, let's remember, coming out of the Reformation is that great moment in history, church history, when we didn't come up with anything new. We recaptured what had been lost by the medieval church. Not completely lost. God always has his people in, all, in every place and every time, and there was a remnant and so on. But a recapturing of these truths, uh, Lutherans would have discussed this in Reform. Those are the two groups that really come out of the Reformation. And everything else devolves out of, right? and that's the key word, devolves out of those two. And almost everything that we think of as a Protestant denomination today, other than Lutheran, 
is descended from Reformed. All your Baptists, all your Church of Christ, all your Nazarenes, your Pentecostals, surprisingly, um, you know, all of them, uh, Anglicans, all of them come out of the Reformed stuff. So at one point, we all held that. And um, I'm going to just frankly say it. I think it's just ignorance. If, I, if you were to ask uh, Philip Jensen, one of the great Lutheran theologians still living today, he would talk about the office of prophet, priest, and king. And then that would be important, I think, to them. If you go to a typical Baptist, no, not so much. And the reason for that... Um, Yes, I think, yes, but I think, and so I'm going to speak, I'm painting with a broad brushstroke, and there are many of our Reformed Baptist brothers who would take, you know, who object to what I'm about to say, and they'd say, not us, and I'd say, yeah, you're right, not you, but I'm looking at the vast majority, let me just say Baptistic, I'll put it that, so it, it covers Bible churches and so on, and again, there are some Bible churches, there are some in this town that take the word of God very seriously, and they're, they know these things and so on. But what happens, I'm going to take it back and I'll end with this. It takes it back to the Second Great Awakening. In fact, we were just talking about that at Men's Grill Night. Um, the Second Great Awakening re, uh, just shifts and reprioritizes almost everything in the American church. You don't find it elsewhere. And it all becomes this idea of getting conversions. Con- getting conversions becomes number one. And, of course, being converted is very important. very hard to be a Christian without it. But this whole idea then is shifted towards that moment. So church itself shifts so that its focus is all about getting you to come to know Jesus. And Charles Finney develops these methods that are still in play today. We're going to play just as I am 200 times until Jared feels so uncomfortable that we'll make him walk until we get Connor to finally repent, you know, and that kind of, and that kind of stuff. So you do all these different things uh, that are methods, that are techniques, that are emotional manipulation. That's right, I... I said it. Um, sorry, so the camera can hear. And all these things are designed. And so the focus becomes so much on those things that these other things get sloughed off. Uh, in the Reformed community, we have our mainline churches like the PC, USA, and so on. And we look at the, the mainline Presbyterians who technically would hold to all the things we hold to. We have groups that break away. Our denomination breaks away in 1936. The PCA breaks away in 1973. The EPC breaks away in 1983. Now, ECO is breaking away in 2010. Every one of these breakaway groups has less and less and less of what we would consider distinctly reformed because they've been fighting all sorts of other battles the longer they stay within that denomination, just wrestling with who is Jesus and whether he really is God or whether there is a resurrection, whether men can be women or women can be men, you know, all these battles that they're fighting. You can only keep up with so much. And so that's, a, that's an example of how they've lost things. Now, that's, that's a negative example. They were fighting against liberalism, and with each generation, the next generation forgets something that was important because they had to just focus on the core. I think that's happened for different reasons, for positive reasons, in our Baptistic and evangelical friends, with them turning so much to conversion and this kind of stuff, then the other stuff sloughs, sloughs, you know, just uh, drops away. When our Pentecostal friends make it on the scene and it all becomes about certain behaviors and certain things, these other things fall away. And with each generation, that's lost knowledge. So the more the churches have, there's a reason why, you know, people, why oh, you guys are so insistent on your theology? Why are you guys so, so that we can pass it on. And t- when Paul tells Timothy, guard the, the sound deposit that's been given to you and pass it on to the next generation, right? And he, he talks about, um, Second uh, Timothy um, uh, two, and he talked to Second Timothy two two, 
and he talks about taking the, uh, uh, you know, uh, training other men like you and so on. We take that very seriously so that that information will not be lost. I think that's a, that's a grand answer. Short of just saying, you know, they've just become ignorant of, of those things. But I think if you stopped a Baptist and asked them, he would tell you, yes, we believe in the office. But they haven't thought through all the... They probably haven't thought through this. Why? Because they don't have a catechism to which... That can, and that's the other thing about confessionalism. The confessions, the catechisms are not scripture, but they summarize what scripture is and it can, it's a way of preserving from generation to generation. I hope that helps. Okay, let's go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up next week. Uh, so hang on to your, your, um, your diagrams. Let's pray and, and we'll get ready for worship. Father, we thank you for the full revelation that is found in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the word of God that has been given to us that points to him and talks about how he continues even now to serve us as prophet, priest, and king. And that, Father, for us uh, is, uh, is a great comfort and, uh, and great encouragement for us, as we're going to see next week, to continue in our roles as prophet, priests, and king, as, uh, kings as those who have been uh, redeemed and who now serve the living and true God once more. And we pray, Lord, that... Um, uh, as we've even talked here about some things that um, seem to be very clear in your scripture. Uh, Father, if it is true that we've understood some of these things, it's not because we're bigger or better or faster or smarter. You've just simply been gracious to us and all of us here are ignorant to a large measure still of who you are and what you've done for us. We want to learn more. We want your church in this country to be revitalized and to turn back to your word and to become students of the word and as a consequence, not just simply greater head knowledge, but those who live uh, uh, more rigorously in a way that pleases you and that um, uh, serves as a witness to this um, uh, society all around us that has become so desperate. We pray, Lord, that you would grant that both that reformation and revival in the church of Jesus Christ here in America where we so desperately need it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.